68 of the Survival Podcast. While well, they just keep rocking along, today is February 1st, 2010. January is gone. It's behind us. I hope you made the most of it. If you did, great. If you did not, let's get started on February. It's a short month. You don't have as many days to make things happen. Uh, today we're going to do a typical Monday show. That is listener feedback. These are questions, comments, uh, emails from you, the audience. Uh, variety of subjects and things to talk about today. Some really cool stuff. I might actually end up doing one or two extras of these this week. I have really overwhelmed by your emails. Um, I've got a huge backlog now. And there's like, every time I do a show, I go back through some of the other emails. And go, Damn, I wanted to answer that one. So I might try to do some catching up this week. And I've got to do some, like uh, my wife's having a little bit of dental surgery on Friday. So I've got to take Friday off. Uh, so I've got to do a pre-recorded show. So I might do a few of these this week uh, to try to catch up on them for you. And it looks like I'm in no danger of ever running out of them. Uh, I guess that means you guys have lots of questions that you want answers to. Anyway, um, before we get into the main topic of today's show, let's talk about uh, our typical housekeeping items. First housekeeping item, taking care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one, Safe Castle Royal. Please check these guys out. They've got something really cool going on right now as well. Between right now and February 13th, yes, the day before Valentine's Day, um, Safe Castle Royal is doing 25% off of all Mountain House items. Again, 25% off of all Mountain House items. So you might want to check them out if you're looking to do some Mountain House stocking up, uh, especially in the month of February. That's a pretty good deal at 25% off. Uh, next up in the uh, sponsors of the day, SOE Tactical Gear, John Willis's group. The absolute best, most durable, most reliable tactical gear you will find anywhere on God's green earth. I really believe that. I've watched one of his pistol belts attempt to be pulled apart by a very large pickup and a very large SUV with uh, one with a huge gas motor and a huge diesel motor. And all the two trucks did was go further down into the ground. That's the type of gear this guy builds. If you want tactical equipment that you will hand down to your children, uh, this, is the, this is the place to get your stuff from. Um, again, it was stuff that was made originally for our special operations troops, Navy SEALs, special forces, people like that, that said our issued gear doesn't do everything we need and went out and looked for something custom made, and now it's available to you, the public. Next up today, make sure you're getting involved with our forum. I've said this before. I believe there is a Ph.D. in preparedness as far as the knowledge value waiting for you in our forum from thousands of people just like you that are really doing these things in the real world, and they can help you figure out how to do the things to live that better. Life, please join our forum and get involved. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. I want to tell you about two new membership benefits that I just added this weekend. Uh, I finally got around to adding Smith Werder's deal. Uh, Smith Werder does range brass and custom leather uh, stuff, and uh, they, they also have um, they, they have uh, concealed carry handbags uh, that are, are really awesome. And what they've done is free shipping 
for all MSB members. I said those are custom handbags. They're not. I can't remember who manufactures them. It's a high-end manufacturer that manufactures them, and they're a reseller for them. Um, but check out Smith Warder in the uh, MSB. Again, free shipping on all their items. We also just added high-mowing organic seeds. Uh, there's a discount code now in the MSB for that. If you're an MSB member or consider joining it, uh, you will also get free shipping on all orders from high-mowing organic seeds. So that's that's pretty cool. And uh, note on high-mowing, uh, they listened to the show when I contact, contacted them. Uh, the guy that runs the thing was like, my wife and I listen to you all the time. I'm like, that's really great. Uh, how about doing something for the members then? And that's what they did. They came back with free shipping uh, for our members uh, so we keep, you know, growing the value of that. Basically, you get to support the show uh, and support the work that I do at 20 cents an episode. Uh, if you think you get two dimes worth of value out of each episode, consider joining. In addition to that, you'll make all your money back as fast as you really want to now. Free ebooks, additional videos that are only available to members, discounts to a tremendous variety of people, and I'll keep adding to that. I'll keep growing that. Seeds of change. I'll, I'll hit, hit them up this week, and we'll get that one knocked down. And there's a few others that I'm checking into. So with that, the housekeeping's knocked out. Let's get into the main uh, body of the show today. I want to start out with one that's not like my technical email where I read it anymore or, you know, say who it came from or what part of the country it came from because, well, this email's come to me in a variety of formats. Probably four or five different versions of this email have come to me uh, in the past month. And I get about one a week, I guess, of these. And every once in a while I need to address this because it's important that people understand where I'm coming from and why I do the things that I do and why I take the approach that I do to the way I do this show with the language that's used in it. I get an email, like I said, about once a week. I really wish you wouldn't use words like shit. Can't you just use S? Or can't you say S-H-T-F instead of shit hit the fan? And the answer is no, I cannot. It's not even that I will not, it's that I cannot. First, I would like you to go and uh, check out on the survivalpodcast.com a link in the, uh, the, the, under the pages that says disclaimers and policies. Way up above the fold, up toward the top, center column, visible to anybody that wants to read it. And section three, I believe, will have adult content warnings and my view of using words like shit on occasion and why I do that. And here's the deal, folks. I don't do it because I can. It's not why I do it. Uh, I, I'm, a, I, I, I'm permitted to do it, I guess, because I can, because I'm not on conventional radio. Right? So I don't have that limitation imposed on me. So my goal from the very beginning has been to make this show authentic. So I use language that most Americans use if you put them into a situation where that language is acceptable. Now, do I go out and start spewing it out every other every other word? No. Do I use it just because I can or for shock value? No. I use it when I'm genuinely angry. So when I talk about the bastards at Monsanto, okay, that's because that's how I genuinely feel about those people. When I call the President of the United States and the majority of our Senate and the majority of our House ass clowns, it's because that's how I genuinely feel. And if you and I sat down over a beer together, Right, and we were just sitting around talking, shooting the breeze, and discussing it, and you brought up Monsanto, I would say straight up, I hate those bastards so much. Because that's who I am. And that's who most people are when you take off the plastic facade that they present to society. Or you take off 
the need that they may feel compelled to not do things because they think they're offending somebody or offending some some level of supernaturalism as well. All right? That's not me. So if it's you, I'm okay with you. Just please be okay with me. If you can't listen to the show because I occasionally use a four-letter word, I'm sorry you can't listen to the show. If you want me to make a rated PG version of the show, you know, a rated G version of the show, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to spend the time. Anybody that wants to sit down, listen to every episode of the show, and create a G version, I'll give you a place to upload it on the server, and we'll put a place where people can go get them. I'm fine with that. I'm not doing it. Because that's not who I am, and the show would not be authentic then. I hope that makes sense. And I hope you understand that I bring this show to you in my personal viewpoint as who I am so that I can help you find a way to view it from your personal viewpoint. And that's the only way I know how to do this show authentically. If I, if I pretty up certain things that I don't find are pretty. For instance, last week I was talking about being prepared for real disasters. And I said, this shit is serious. Well, folks, if I'm trying to get that through to you, that's the best way I can get it through to you. Now, the fact that I don't do it that often, that makes it work for emphasis. When I use profanity, I use it for emphasis. Just like I use certain other words for emphasis, even if they're not considered profane. Now, I've had one person kind of send me this lecture and said, a person that's as articulate as you, has a vocabulary that's as broad as yours, clearly doesn't need to result to these words. It's not a need. It's not that I can't find another word to fit. It's there's not another word that fits that conveys the same emotion and is still authentic. So that's why I do these things. Hopefully that makes sense. Those of you who can't live with it, I'm sorry, find another outlet. And I'm not saying that to be a jerk. I'm saying that to be genuine. This show is not about can I build it up to 100,000 listeners and make a bunch of money. It's can I make sure that every person that chooses to listen to this show absolutely knows that I care about them. And I would put as much effort and as much emphasis into helping one individual that listens to this show is making sure the show runs every day, if it were possible. And I can only do that if I am who I really am. So this is who I really am. Those of you who write me and say, I'd like my kids to listen to the show, listen to them first. Fast forward through the parts you don't like. Or let them hear it and say, we don't use those words right now because. You do whatever you want with your kids to your kids. I won't tell you how to run your life there. But don't expect me to make this a rated G show for anybody. Please stop asking me to. It's never going to happen. Let's move on. Here's an interesting one. It's not something that I've never discussed, uh, especially in print. I guess I've written about this a little bit. It says, hi, there was a listener question recently. Uh, this comes from Martin, also known as Badger on the forum. Uh, there's a listener question recently about creative alternative ways to add silver coins to your portfolio. You pointed, pointed out finding them in circulation is rare since they're recognized so quickly. Perhaps a creative alternative would be to look for nickels and pennies. Current nickels have more metal value than face value. How long will that last? And it's simple to get rolls of pennies from your bank or place of business. I find about 20% of the pennies are pre-1982 pennies. These should not take the place of one silver or gold investment. They're a creative way to diversify. Downside is portability. I have lots of things around the house that I find aren't all that uh, portable. Upside cost, I can save these at face value with inflation guaranteed. The metal content will keep rising. I sort pennies with my kids. It's a fun hobby. Teaches them number recognition and counting skills. Uh, we'll bring them home with a concrete way of, uh, of, of, of the nature of inflation. Okay, it, it's not a terrible suggestion. Let me 
let me tell you my issues with it. One is the value of a nickel is in its copper. Now that copper is clad in uh, in nickel and zinc. And that would make actually melting down nickels and separating the copper sort of difficult, not impossible, not not so difficult that the nickel itself may never be seen as a piece of scrap metal. Uh, it probably will. It'll probably be worth more than five cents at that point. But what happens is every time that copper really spikes, the federal government comes in with a temporary law that says that anybody that melts down uh, current uh, forms of currency will end up going to jail for a while. Okay, so that's... That's one issue that we have with that, is every time there's really a, a big spike in metal price, they suppress the ability to do this. So I, I guess that's an issue there. The other thing is the amount of energy expended to actually melt this stuff down and separate the metal to its component parts. Um, with, with pennies, you have uh, high copper content in the pennies all the way up, as was mentioned, in 1982. I'm going to give you a little factoid today, something kind of cool that you can work on yourself and just learn something about metal composition today with this. Um, if you take a penny uh, that is pre-1982 and put it, you know, on your finger like you're going to do, like you're going to flip a coin, and you flip it so that your thumbnail strikes it, so that it actually flicks at it with the nail and nail hits it. As it spins in the air, you'll hear it make a little sound like that. If you take a 1983 or later penny and you do that, you'll hear nothing. You practice with an 83 plus or an 81 minus, right, for a while until you can do it consistently, then find some 82s. You'll find about half of the 82s make the pwing and half of them don't. Because half of the pennies in 1982 are actually all copper. That was the year they made the switch. Now, why did they make the switch? Well, they made the switch because people were taking buckets of pennies to the junkyard. Say that again. They, were, they, they made the switch because people were taking buckets of penny to, pennies to the junkyard. And once the government stepped in and said you can't melt pennies, people would take the pennies, and they would melt them down, and they would take the slag to the junkyard. And the penny was being massively erased, erased from, uh, from circulation. So much so that I remember, I was in like, I guess probably second grade, or third grade, somewhere around there in 1982. And um, I remember us all bringing pennies in. And they had little kids all over the country bringing their pennies in to open bank accounts, to learn about it. And you could open an account for a dollar. And I know that people say, well, people still do that. But they tell the kids, bring your pennies, your nickels, your dimes, your dollars, whatever. No, in 1982, they were telling kids, in 1983 even, bring your pennies. Bring your pennies. Just your pennies. Get a big jar of them. Go bob bother mom and dad and uncle. And say, all they were trying to do was push a bunch of pennies from circulation back into the banks. Because it was actually becoming a penny shortage. So that's why this happened. So that's why they stepped in with laws like that. So that's one of the things that can get in the way of that. Um, I would tell you that it can't hurt. Because like you said, you still have the face value guaranteed. If you have $1,000 worth of nickels around, it's still worth $1,000. Uh, it's no different than maybe having $1,000 in, in, in $10 bills around, except it's not as easy to spend them, etc. So you can do that. Uh, to me, it's only like an extra little fun thing, the way you're doing it with your kids. That's fine. You know, if you just... Every time you, you go through your pocket change, you throw all of the change that's the balance into one container just for saving up. You put all your nickels in a jar, and you put all your pre-82 pennies in a jar, and you just kind of save them. I, I guess that's okay, but I sure wouldn't rely on that uh, for long-term investment value. Uh, let's go ahead and take another question here. 
Here's an interesting one on guns. Let's totally shift gears here. This comes from Jason. Jason says, thank you for your show and all your gun advice. It's helped me in my buying. Um, I'm interested in getting my first large caliber rifle, a 308 uh, bolt centerfire. I've always been steered toward Remington for rifles, especially the 700 series, but hearing you speak so well of Marlin firearms has piqued my interest. So Marlin and Savage Stevens 308 rifles seem half the cost of Remington 700. What would I be getting for the extra money with going with a Remington? What would I be losing by going with the Marlin or the Savage? There's a Marlin he has listed for $314, a Savage for $317, and a Remington he has listed for uh, $528 with, uh, with links to them. Well, let me put it to you this way. When it comes to a smoothness of the rifle, truly the smoothness of the, smoothness of the bolt, and the, uh, the appearance of a rifle, the, the cosmetic nature of a rifle, we have to admit that the, the Remington Model 700 and the Winchester Model 70s uh, are, are beautiful guns, and they really are. And, and one of the things you get is a craftsmanship in the upgrade. When I compare the Remington 700, though, to the Savage uh, bolt-action rifles, the 110s, the 10s, uh, going all the way back to, to the, the, the mid-50s and all the way up till now, um, I'll tell you what you get. You get a prettier gun. That's, that's what you get. Um, the Savage is rock-solid. Uh, bulletproof weapon. It's extremely accurate. The new triggers on them are absolutely amazing. Uh, I have a rather new Savage. I have a rather old Savage. I will never get rid of either one of them. They do not have the level of, of class and appeal uh, that, a, uh, like I say, a 700 ABL or BDL does. They just don't. Uh, from a, but that's a cosmetic thing. For From accuracy... The most accurate, out-of-the-box rifles I've ever shot are Savage Bolt Actions. And I know people will disagree with me. I can only tell you my personal experiences with them. Um, the Marlin. All I can tell you is I have a tremendous uh, affinity for Marlin firearms. I own quite a few of them. I have not yet even touched their new Bolt Action rifle. So I, I can't give you uh, a direct opinion of that that weapon because I haven't examined it. I haven't needed a new bolt action anytime very recently, so I haven't really been out shopping them. If they build their bolt actions, which I can't see why they would not, to the level of quality that they build their lever actions and their 22s, I can't see you going wrong there either. So unless you're worried about the cosmetic and brand appeal of the Remington, which, let's be honest, it's a beautiful gun. Um, unless you're worried about that, I would gravitate toward the other two, and I would get out and I would I would put my hands on, touch, and learn uh, the mechanisms and, and the maintenance and everything with the Savage and, and the Marlin, and I would be comfortable with either choice. Um, if I if you said you have to give me an answer right now, which one should I buy? I would tell you the Savage, but it's no disrespect to Marlin. And it's just because I haven't had practical hands-on experience with the Marlin yet, so I'm not comfortable making an equivalency recommendation there. My gut is that it's more than equivalent. It's, it's probably just as good. My, my other thing, though, is I haven't really read a lot of accuracy reports on the Marlin yet, and I don't know if it's going to live up to Savage's accuracy. Um, odds are it will. But there's one special thing about Savage rifles that I think a lot of people don't realize. Putting a new barrel on most rifles is actually a big deal. It's a lot of work, and you really need a, somebody with at least some gunsmithing competency to do that. And sometimes it requires uh, some extra things that a person would have a real hard time doing in their home. Uh, to do it with a Savage is pretty simple. 
It's actually amazingly simple. Uh, it requires a, what's called a go and a no-go uh, gauge to make sure that the uh, headspace is set properly, which you can buy for a few bucks each. Uh, it requires a wrench that's designed to turn that kind of ugly-looking uh, uh, collar nut that's on the Savage barrel. And you can, within 10 minutes, swap out a barrel on a Savage. So much so that uh, you might go out and buy a 308 Savage and go to get an aftermarket barrel for a 358 Winchester for it and um, have that bigger bore available for specific hunting needs. At times when you, maybe let's say you go elk hunting once every couple of years and uh, basically you have the same gun and you have a swappable barrel. Now you'll have to re-zero it uh, because the, the, obviously the, uh, the ammunition is going to fly differently. And your scope is going to stay on the receiver and mounted. So you will have to re-zero it. But I'll tell you what, it's a, it's a pretty impressive little shooting platform. So my gut is I would go with the Savage. If you have any ability to do this, though, I would go uh, and put my hands on all three weapons first. And I would talk to somebody that owns them. I own Remington 700s. I own Savage bolt actions uh, and the Model 10 and a newer Model 110. Um, I could tell you between the two of those, there's a silkiness to the Remington, but that's what you're getting is the silkiness. All right, let's uh, let's move on from there and take another question. Here's an interesting one. Um, comes from Seth Tanner. Seth says, um, on one of the podcasts, you mentioned a solar panel kit being sold at Costco is both able to re- directly connect to a home's electrical system and is expandable. Uh, do you have any more information available? I was looking for a company name, product information, or anything that would allow me to do a bit more research. I live in Pennsylvania and would be very interested in the system you described. Thanks for the great podcast and information. Sorry, Seth, can't help you. Um, one, you got it wrong, and I'm not picking on you. I'm just, you got it wrong. Um, I, it, what I said was there's a, a system, just like you described, available from Home Depot in about 30 stores in Southern California. It's either Home Depot or Lowe's. I'll look it up to you, uh, for you. I'll put up a, a link in the show notes today uh, that will um, allow you to, uh, to, to go see the company that makes these, and uh, it'll tell you whether it was Lowe's or Home Depot. The problem is this is a very small-scale project right now, and it's only being done in Southern California. So even if you know who they are and even if you know what store to get them, you're not going to be able to get them from uh, Pennsylvania. What I saw in Costco was a totally different system. Costco has a solar backup system for about 200 and some odd dollars. The only thing you have to do is add a battery or a couple batteries to it. Um, And what it is is it's a solar panel, a charge controller, uh, and an inverter, and, and everything you need except the batteries to set up your own um, solar backup system. It's actually several solar panels. They total 60 watts. I've been thinking about buying one. The thing is, I know you could build the same system for less money. The frame is built out of PVC pipe. Um, I think you could probably get 100 watts of solar panels on there um, and a better inverter, and you could probably do it out of, and you know, get a charge controller, probably do it for a better price. Um, but I'm thinking about buying it anyway because it's kind of a snap-together kit and if I do it, it won't be because it's the best thing out there for the solution. It's because anybody could do it. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, instructions, snap together, get a battery, hook the battery up, point the thing at the sun, and start making electricity. So I may buy one just to help folks out and put it on YouTube. And it may be a good base for me to build from. Um, I'm not really sure, though. It's hard for me to buy something when I know it's not the best value for the money. Um, 
but you know, again, is it the best value for the money for me? Maybe not. But is it the best value for the money for the average person? It might be. Because if it takes them from no solar redundancy to some, and it's a choice that they make to do that, and then when the shit hits the fan, they have a way to provide some electricity, well, then it was probably the best value for them, other than sitting around and saying, one day I'm going to get to it. It's part of why I bought my solar oven. I was going to build one, and I just kept not getting to that project. And I basically said, I want a solar oven in my home. I want to make it part of what I do. So I plucked down the money and I bought one, even though I could have built one for a fraction of the cost. So sometimes it pays to have other people build things when they do a better job. Um, now, the, the solar system you're talking about, I have high hopes that we'll start seeing more and more of systems like this become available to people throughout our country in the coming years. I think that was a first step in the right direction. What these are are panels. You put them on your roof. You run a wire down, and you basically plug it straight into your circuit breaker, into one of the breaker boxes. And then when you add a new panel, you just plug that panel into the first. And you can expand this thing all the way across your, you know, your roof. Uh, very simple self-installation. It does not have battery backup. All it is a grid-tied system that has the AC converter built into the panels themselves. So the panels produce the power in DC, immediately convert it to AC and send it down to your distribution system and offset your utility bills. Um, I also just read an article in the most recent uh, edition of Mother Earth News about uh, new solar films and how many new solar films are coming out. And what these are is basically you could put these on, you know, roll it out and it's a solar panel. And it's, you know, micro-thin, but very, very uh, weather-resistant, durable, could be used uh, basically as roofing material. So your roof is a solar panel, which is, and, and they're bringing the cost of this stuff way, way down. And that's being made, like this, the pioneer in that is a company called First Solar out of Arizona. And uh, they supposedly have the cost per watt with the films down to 0.85 uh, uh, cents, so 85 cents per watt. That's $850 a kilowatt. That's pretty daggone cheap. And then they have the after, you know, everything else, the balance of system, they call it, down to a dollar ten a watt. So you're looking at about $2,000 a kilowatt there. That's, uh, that's pretty impressive. And they have a goal to bring it down to $0.65 cents a watt um, by the end of this year, the films, and the balance of system down to, like, $0.90 cents or $0.85 cents a watt. It's pretty cool what they're doing. So there's a lot of advances being made in solar, but I really think the thing that's going to – uh, make solar mainstream for the average consumer is if you can, you know, bolt a couple things to your roof, run one wire and plug it in and start making electricity, and we can keep driving the cost of that down, then I think that's going to make solar more attainable to folks. The thing is, as soon as the power goes out, you still have a problem, especially if it's at nighttime, but at least it's a step in the right direction. It would take a lot of stress off the grid, too. If everybody went out and put in, I don't know, half a kilowatt, 500 watts, of solar panels throughout America, if that was the average per home, uh, the amount of electricity we would save would be immense. Um, there's 130 million, uh, what do they call single occupancy homes, something like, something like 130 million of them in the United States. Uh, not everybody gets great solar exposure or whatever, but if we could average half a kilowatt of home in solar production, it's amazing. And I'm also looking at some of the things in this article in Mother Earth News that these guys say we're going to be able to do, like, uh, you know, basically turning every covered piece of parking and every commercial building uh, into a solar panel. 
and how much electricity we could create if we, if we would start doing things like this. Taking existing structures, we don't have to cut anything down, we don't have to move anything, and just anywhere where there's solar exposure, we can get the cost of this film down cheap enough, even if that spot only gets solar exposure for four or five hours, you, you're putting it on there as, a, uh, as an environmental protection, uh, just like you would uh, a tiled, uh, or a, what do you call it, a shingled roof. So if it has an equivalency cost or close to equivalency cost and any net power production beyond that, it becomes financially feasible to do it. So I think big things are coming in the solar market. Sorry I can't help you a little bit better, Seth, uh, but, but that's what I said. That's what's going on there, and I'll see if I can link some stuff up for you today. All right, here's one that, uh, good question, comes from a guy named Devin. Um, Devin has a, uh, written me a book. Uh, I'm not going to read, and uh, it's okay, because I'm still going to answer his question. This is what I said, folks, when you want me to answer your questions, do it this way. Um, here's what he put at the top of his email. Do you have a specific technique for getting people to pay attention to their debt, or do they have to experience how damaging it is after job loss or emergency for them to recognize its need to be paid down? Basis, this is going to be a little long, sorry in advance. As per your instructions, question at the top, book below. Very good, Devin. I may actually read your book, but I don't need to read your book to answer your question. And um, it, it tells me maybe I need to do another show on debt. I haven't done for a, one for a while. Maybe I'll knock out a show on debt uh, this week because I have to take a day or two off this week, and I need to do some extra shows. That would be an easy one to knock out fast. Um, but I'll tell you what. Your question is great, and I think I'll tell you how. My wife and I sat down one day together over some level of disagreement, and, and believe it or not, folks, she was more onto we got to get rid of this than I was at the time. I didn't get it yet. You know what did it? She sat down, she took every debt we had, she added it up and got a total. Mortgage, car payment, truck payment, credit cards. The credit cards were over $25,000, yes? I am a credit card center from the past. I've repented, but I will not deny, and we both were. It didn't get there from me, it didn't get there from her, and it didn't get there from stuff that we did for other family members. It got done from a combination of the three. And about 5000 of it, maybe a little bit more, was actually from expenses that were incurred from a company uh, that I had worked for that welched on paying the expenses, and I was never able to get them to pay it. And if I got an attorney and whatever, by the time I would have got the money, I would have ended up in a net loss anyway. So I'd given up. So about five of the 25 was debt that I incurred with the intent of having it repaid through, uh, through a company, uh, through a contract that was not honored. And um, I'd let that be an excuse, honestly. You know, it's not all my fault. Well, it's still my problem. That was the reality I wasn't really in touch with. When we sat down and we looked at the mortgage, the truck payment, the car payment, the credit cards in total, and some medical bills in total, and we said, okay, well, how long will this take to pay off if we make the minimums? It was like 30 years. And I said, well, that's, it's being tipped by the mortgage. Come on, we're going to have the mortgage. It's fine. So we took the mortgage out. Let's everything except the mortgage. And then it, it accelerated up quite a bit. She said, but you're not getting it. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, let's take the cars out. Obviously, the cars have a short-term payment schedule. You like to buy new cars anyway, so we'll buy a new car. We'll have another debt. That'll recycle. So we just looked at the credit card debt, the 25K, and some medical bills. So if we can't make the minimum payments, it was going to take us like 19 years to pay them off. 19 years. And I said, you know what? 
19 years. I'll be in my 50s. She's a bit older than me. You'll be near your 60s. We'll be talking about retirement, and we'll still be carrying this monkey of debt, which has got to go. Yeah, I know. And at that moment, the uh, baton was taught, was passed. And um, I don't know if she knew what she was getting herself into when she did it, but I became a debt-killing maniac. All debt must die. No new debt must be incurred. We need a new car. No, we don't. But we know, right? Uh, it will, we, we owe $7,000 on the car still. How much is in the bank account? More than enough to cover it? Pay off the car. What? Right? And, I mean, I went absolutely freaking nuts that in two years we had no debt, except the mortgage on the house, which will go away when we sell the house. I mean, that's what did it for us. That's what really did it for us, was sitting down and looking at what I call the real cost. And the cost may be different for different people. Uh, you may sit down and do the exact same thing and then add up the payments and say that, you know, the $25,000 in credit card debt is going to cost you $110,000 to pay off. And then you may decide that that, that $85,000, $90,000 in interest over 20 years is too much. For us, it was the years. Uh, it was something about looking at it and realizing we're talking about almost two decades. And you know what really, it, it just put this sinking pit feeling in my stomach and made me realize, and I don't know if my wife realized what she was getting herself into when she pointed this out, but at the time I guess I was around 35. And maybe now probably I was about 30, how old would I have been? I would have been about 33. 33. So at that moment, you know, it's easy to do math with tens. So I thought, it will take me as long to pay off this debt as it took me to go from being a 13-year-old boy to being in this moment right now, sitting here with my wife, worrying about the future of ourselves and our son. And when I thought about it that way, that was it. No more. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. That's why you think so much. That's Jackson. Not your debt, man. Because debt is cancer. And I'll tell you what, if you're thinking, I don't want to do this little exercise, Jack. I, I don't feel so comfortable sitting down and adding all this stuff up. I don't, I don't want to look at it all in one place. You know what that is? That's like the guy that has a weird growth on his leg and doesn't want to go to the doctor. He's afraid the doctor might say, I don't is cancer. But the thing is, as soon as you see that, you should run to the doctor. What is it? Because if it's cancer, odds are they can fix it. You know, and if they can't, it's not going to change anything. But the quicker you address it, the less of a problem a cancer will be in your life. The longer you let it sit and metastasize, the bigger a problem will be. That's debt. And the same person, I don't want to talk, I don't want to look about it, always find an excuse, always argue with your spouse, don't want to do it, don't want to do it, don't want to do it. You're the same person that would tell the guy with the lump on it, like, you idiot, go to the doctor. Well, I'm telling you today, idiot, sit down, add up your debt. Find out how long it's going to take to pay it off at the minimum payments. Find out what the cost is going to be. If you're going to live with it, know what it is. And I'll bet you, the majority of people, if you'll sit down and you'll do it, if you'll sit down and you'll understand it, you'll turn into a debt Nazi too, because you'll understand there's no place even for a little bit of cancer in your life if you can avoid it. So there's no place in your life even for a little bit of consumer debt if you can avoid it. Uh, great question. Let's go take another one.
here's an interesting one I get variations of often. I think I've addressed before, but as much as I get the question and as much as I see it in forms, it bears answering again. comes from a, a fellow named Ryan. Ryan says, when the shit hits the fan, is gold and silver really going to be worth having, or would you be better off having these pe- having things people can use for food, tools, and supplies? I only ask this because my uncle sent me an article about gold, and it's based on the Bible. It mentions they will throw off their, they will throw their silver in the streets, and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it's be. Uh, became their stumbling block of inequity. Don't mean to get into the religious aspect of things, just curious as to what you think. Thanks again for your great shows, and keep up the great work you do. Okay, well, let's take things in the context that were intended, and then let's extrapolate from the context and see what they can learn. Here's the thing about the Bible. I am not a religious man. Those of you who think I am, you've misunderstood um, I'm a spiritual person, but I do not follow any organized faith. Some of you are going, <gasps> and some of you are going, well, duh. Okay, so, um, but I don't take away faith from anybody, and I see a lot of wisdom in the Bible, and at one point in time in my life, I read the Bible a lot, and I gained a lot of, of what I believe is understanding and wisdom about the eternal things of the universe from the Bible, and uh, this passage, I don't know it well, but I, I get the point, and the point is that in the end times, when there's there's no more left, and everything is going to be poured out as the wrath, that gold and silver won't buy you anything. Well, I guess at the end of the earth, gold and silver won't buy you anything. Uh, but there's a hell of a lot more in the Bible about wisely managing your money, including silver and gold, than there is about the, the lack of a need for it. And, and what this passage is telling us is those that live their lives based on wealth and material wealth, and that would be all things, my friend, not just including things. See, that's where see, people take these, these things and they try to make a non-religious subject religious. You know, being prepared to deal with inflation is not a religious subject. You can get uh, intuition and you can get wisdom from the religious world, but if you try to make it a purely religious thing, it all falls apart because you miss the message. The message here is that if you live your life based on material wealth, eventually something will come along and cause enough disruption in your life, the material wealth will not help you any longer. Or, in a literalist interpretation, would be that in the end days, the physical wealth won't help you any longer. Um, Folks, I'm going to tell you that in this passage, it would include things like food and tools and supplies. Those would all be physical things. This is about putting um, your faith in the spiritual. Okay? Now, Let's go back to the spirit of the question, though. Is gold and silver going to be worth having if the shit is the fan? Initially, you're going to be shocked, some of you have never heard this before. No, absolutely not. If you were running around in the middle of the streets of New Orleans four or five days into the disaster with silver eagles and wanted food, you probably wouldn't have had much luck with that. You have to understand that when we prepare for disasters, we prepare for disasters everything from... A one-day minor inconvenience to a multi-month or multi-year should hit the fan. And that in all those scenarios, there's different phases of things that people would go through. And different disasters bring with them different problems. In other words, if we had runaway inflation, if that was the disaster, if we had the dollar go down to nothing and become completely worthless, 
And what would happen then is some t- sort of new currency would be created, and society rebuilds itself, and society will rebuild itself. It always has everywhere. A society has been destroyed, and has then gone into a rebuilding phase. When it went into that rebuilding phase, your old currency might even be cashable in. They might say, okay, for every $1,000, we'll give you one Amero. Just to appease the New World Order uh, tinfoil hat types out there, right? Well, I get you get a lot more Ameros for an ounce of silver. So in a rebuilding situation, that's where the silver really kicks in, or a long-term inflation hedge. If you just simply look at what you could buy with 1,000 silver quarters in 1964 and 1,000 silver quarters today, you can basically buy the same thing. So that's how they fit in, either as part of the rebuilding or a long-term hedge of inflation. During the acute portion of a disaster, no. But during the rebuilding phase where barter starts to come in, something has to go and be used for barter. And the, the most ancient form of currency that, that has not only been in the ancient world, but has been in the current world as well, is gold and silver. That's why I see them. Don't bring religion into places where it doesn't belong. But take the wisdom from religion and use it to ascertain the right answers to current problems. Because there's a tremendous amount of wisdom in the world's face. A tremendous amount. And I see a lot of wisdom from Bible uh, verses like the one that you mentioned. But it absolutely has nothing to do with what the author is angling at. That God doesn't want you to have gold. Come on. Come on. Let's be a little bit more realistic here. Let's be a little bit more honest with ourselves. We can't just plan for it. I mean, because there's people out there, even people who listen to the show, and I think the ones that are doing this, I don't get why you listen to my show. They're like, the end days are here. Next next month or, or next year. So there's like, no way we're going to be here in five years. God's coming back and he's got wrath. He's spilling it out and it's going to be Armageddon. That's coming. If you think it's the end, there's no sense in prepping. The end is the end, right? So. I don't know. I, I, I'm a big I'm a big believer that we don't bring the religious in um, literally into making decisions that are going to impact our lives. Because even if I'm wrong and you're right, and the end is coming at some point in complete and total apocalyptic end and a literal interpretation of the Book of Revelation, even if that's coming, we have to live and we have to pr- provide for ourselves and plan for ourselves and everything that would come between now and that point. And there are countless disasters, there are countless wars, there are countless catastrophes, from the personal to the global, that we've had to deal with in the past and that we will have to deal with in the future. And no matter what your religious beliefs are or are not, that is fact. And that is reality. And even if you're a deeply religious person, there's plenty of support in the text that you hold sacred for being prepared, not just for the end, but for whatever life brings to you so that you can be a good steward on the planet. All right, so please don't bring those two together. And as far as what gold and silver would be worth and it should hit the fan, during the peak of the acute stages of a disaster, when people say they would be worthless, they're right. But they're very narrow-minded, very myopic, and I have to say not very intelligent to not comprehend that every disaster runs through a cycle. And once it hits bottom, it usually stays there for a while. That's what's going on in Haiti right now. But eventually, eventually, all things come to pass, and we begin a kind of a ramping up, rebuilding phase. 
And at that point, we have to have some form of currency to get the things we didn't store, we've run out of, we can't procure for ourselves, we can't create for ourselves. And in many big disaster scenarios, there's a potential for the currency itself to become worthless. And trust me, gold and silver will be and always have been a store of value. Let's take another question. Here's two questions from a listener, but he got them out quick, so I'll answer both of them. This is from a person named Chris. Chris says, what are your thoughts on buying rental properties as income-producing investments? Do you have any recommendations for resources and or books that I should look into before getting involved with this? Um, Not really. Because I've gotten out of that. There was a time in my life when I thought that's a big thing that I was going to do. I was going to buy uh, a portfolio of property, uh, make money on the rental with cash flow, make money on the appreciation, and things like that. I had one experience with being a landlord. On, a, on the property that I own in Arkansas, I leased it to my niece and uh, her husband, I guess you'd call him my nephew-in-law, uh, for about three years. Uh, they're good people. I love them. They're still family. I'm still friends with them today. Every time we go up there, we sit down and have dinner with them. We usually pick up the check. There's no resentment. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm going to say next. But they did not take care of my house. They did a lot of damage to my house. They did nothing to improve the value of my house. My house was worth less when they left than when they went in. They were generally on time with the rent, but not always. I leased the house to them for far less than I would have leased it to anybody else. I actually took a small loss on the property of about 10 bucks a month. I just came up with a round number and said, here, you guys can have it for this. I was trying to help them. If that is what my family will treat my property like, I can only imagine what it's like to have other tenants that will treat the property even worse because they don't have to see you a bunch of times a year at family events. I'm not comfortable with being a landlord anymore. I don't think it is a bad investment strategy, but I think you really have to know what you're doing. I think that the only way that I would be comfortable doing it in the future would be to have enough money and enough margin built into the cash flow to be able to buy a property, turn it over to a management company, and have the management company completely run it and send me a check for $150 a month, whatever my cash flow off that property was. And they manage it, and they take care of cleaning it, and they have, you know, if there's a plumber needs to come out, they take care of it, and there's money built in for that, and, it, and there's, there's ways to do that. The problem that we've seen is that we can go into severe recessions where the underlying value of the properties drop like a rock. So I don't believe you can do it with highly leveraged deals. I think that's a big problem. All these no-money-down courses, I have no faith in them anymore. This is a place where I'm inclined to agree with Dave Ramsey. If you want to go into the real estate market, you want to do it with paid-for-real-estate. So if I have a property that I own, I can rent it for whatever the market will bear, and I can pull cash flow out of it. It always has some underlying value. I could walk out on it anytime I want it because I'm not carrying a debt load against it. As long as I can rent it, for more than its upkeep, maintenance, and taxes, I have a positive cash flow from it as an asset. And, and that, I don't think that's an easy way to do it. And I don't think you're going to be able to build up a portfolio of 50 houses that way, uh, at least not anytime soon. But it's the way I would do it. As for resources, 
Um, I can't help you, because everyone that I've looked into, everyone that I've gone down the road with pretty much says the same thing, and I've lost faith. I've absolutely lost faith in the concept of buying property with little or no money down, highly leveraged deals, uh, writing your own mortgage notes, seller financing, all of it. You know, and in the end, all of these make you know, how to do real estate courses come down with, well, if you really don't have any money at all, these no money deals we talked about, it's not really that easy. Go find a rich uncle and borrow some money from him. You know, I, go, go find a partner and get some capital infused or whatever. Look, there is no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, real estate is a valuable commodity. I think it belongs in your investment portfolio. But I would rather see you buy a place to live that you absolutely can afford with no troubles and no worries. Get yourself solid in life. Eliminate your debt and buy a second property that you own as an investment property uses a fallback location, a vacation home, bug out location, call it what you want, and have that as your investment portfolio. And then if you want to do real estate, you really need to take baby steps, and I'm not the mentor for you. It's beyond my world. Uh, my, my initial experiences with it have taught me that I don't want it. That's not to say it's wrong for you. It's just wrong for me. Next question from the same guy, much easier question for me to answer. I have a question I would like to include asparagus as part of my backyard food production. Do I need to dedicate an area to asparagus, or are there other crops that make good companions in this space? Also, any other advice uh, for when trying to grow asparagus? I'm excited to grow asparagus. It's perennial and a food that we enjoy. Okay, here. Asparagus, is, there's nothing special about it from a standpoint of having to isolate it from other things. But it's a very tall crop. Uh, you don't want to take all your spears. First year, you just want to let it grow, and it'll die back when it freezes. Right? And the second year, when the shoots come up, you can start breaking off shoots to eat. You want to go really light in your harvest in your, in your second year, and then in your third year, you've got to go to a full harvest and keep doing that. But you always want to let some of your asparagus grow into this great big fern that it is. And it is uh, asparagus is a beautiful plant once you let it grow. So you're, you're breaking off these spears um, to harvest them. But eventually you let the fern grow out and you let it uh, increase its root mass and give itself energy so it can stay the winter over and come back and be that perennial plant. If you just cut every single spear that comes up, that'll never happen. So when it comes up, we're talking about a bush. I don't think most people get what asparagus looks like. You know, we're talking chest height. Or higher when the thing fully grows out. So the problem is it's not really good to plant anything in, in amongst your asparagus. But if you created an area for asparagus coming into the front side of it, the sunny side of it, the east, west, and, uh, and south side, right, you could plant stuff kind of surrounding it that's a lower level plant. Things like bush beans would be great because they're going to nitrify the soil and leave it behind as the biomass of the, uh, of the root system for the asparagus expands. But anything that's kind of a, um, a short plant will do well there. Also, it's probably a good idea later in the summer, maybe some of the, and I don't know, this is a, this is a guess, but in, in later in the summer, it may be a great place to plant some of the things that get hit pretty hard with summer pests because all of that fern system that's back there, because you harvest the asparagus in the spring, by midsummer it's a big fern, you're done with the harvest for the year from the asparagus, um, is a great place for predator habitat. So it might be a really cool place if you put some, some additional things in there, let's say some, uh, some things like some basil, 
to bring some flowers as well, and then plant some of your things that maybe you're having some problems with some pests with, kind of working out and building it as a tiered system. So your asparagus on the north side far back, because it's going to get more sun, and once you stop harvesting, go in and plant in front and in the sides of it would be the way to handle that. So good questions. Sorry I can't do better with the real estate one, but I do admit the places that I'm weak or I've chosen just not to go. Here's an interesting one. Um, a guy named Sam says, it's not sure if you've seen this book package, but about survival. I thought I would forward the details to you after getting one myself. 22,000 survival books and military manuals for $27. Uh, and it's available from survivalebooks.com slash survivalist.html. Um, I'm not real impressed, and I'll tell you why. First of all, 22,000 ebooks, you ain't gonna read them all. They just ain't gonna happen. Um, in fact, if you read 2% of those, I'd be impressed, and I don't think you would. Second of all, um, looking at the list, uh, just about every single thing on that list is part of the, uh, what you call public domain. Most of them are military field manuals and things like that. And if you just go through there and see one that you fancy, if you copy it and just scroll across it with your mouse, hit Control-C to copy the text and search for it, you'll probably find it for free online. So the few that you might actually want out of it, you can probably get for free. So all this person has done is basically run a bot. This is, this is how these things happen, these types of things. I'm not saying it's a terrible product, and I'm not saying there's no value in it. I'm just saying I don't think the average person is going to get that much value out of it. So this person writes a computer bot, and it looks for certain terms and, and things like that, and then runs some data cleaning, and just basically sends this bot out on the Internet and just runs through Google, basically, and just finds everything it can that meets certain descriptions and criteria and sorts them into a data sheet, and then you do a little bit of data cleansing, and then you go do a harvest, and you pull all the files that you want. You spend them onto a disk, and you sell that for $27 or whatever the market will pay you for it. And my problem with it is you have this just massive amount of information, way too much to actually be useful and effective. And, and that's just my opinion, and your opinion may vary. And Sam, I don't think you need to go ranting and raving over 27 bucks and asking for your money back, but I could not make a, a good uh, recommendation that you buy any, and it's not this company. I've seen this done by a lot of different people. And I think that if you go to our forum, you could find a whole section of free ebooks. Um, and a lot of them are the ones that are on this list that you can just go get. So I, it's not that I don't like ebooks. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I'm writing one. Uh, we have a lot of free ebooks in the members brigade area that are actually sold elsewhere that I think have a lot of value. But when it comes to just taking a dump out of the public domain, and taking all of these these uh, publications that are put out by FEMA and the government and things like that and throwing them on a disk, um, I don't think you can probably utilize those things very well. So, Sam, if I'm wrong, if they come up with some kind of clever cataloging searching system and this thing is just the bee's knees, uh, email me and tell me I'm wrong, and I'll plunk down my 27 bucks and buy one, and I'll check it out, and then I'll give you my opinion again, which may or may not be the same. But as far as I can see from the surface, not a good place for your 27 bucks. I'd rather you put $27 into uh, a silver coin and keep a couple extra bucks in your pocket uh, or into your preps or into your food storage or something like that or just into a bank account saving up or paying off your debt with it than buying 22,000 PDFs on a disc. Just one man's opinion. Uh, yours may differ. Let's take another question. Here's an interesting one. Let's see what I can do with this one. Uh, I'd like to know what permaculture concepts I can apply to a fenced dog or background. We're in the process of creating our homes set on 50 acres of forest. 
I plan on fencing a portion of the yard on the east side of the house for the dogs. We have two young Malamutes who are expected to be between 75 and 100 pounds. Males aren't known for respecting property boundaries, so we'll be putting up a pretty high fence, six to eight feet, things I've been considering. One, enclose the chicken yard within the dog yard to offer, offer the chickens protection from nefarious wildlife. Although the chickens might need more protection from the constant harassment from the dogs than from the wildlife. Um, okay, let's start with the chickens, and let's, let me give you some ideas uh, on what I would do with that. I would not do a freestanding chicken coop and yard inside your yard. I would use the exterior fence uh, with maybe a long the fence put in some additional protection to keep predators out and chickens in up as high as the chicken runs go, and I would take some portion of the fence and I would basically dedicate it to chicken runs. And with the kind of thing you're describing there, you could probably do maybe three sections of run where the chickens could be held off into different locations um, based on that. Coming off of that fence for the chickens, I would put a second fence. It really wouldn't be a fence. It would be more a trellis system which I would use something like 4 by 4s and, and a good heavy gauge wire with good tensioning between them, and that's where I would do my SLR uh, trees. What that would do is give some privacy and some uh, shade to the chickens in the summer uh, and create a second degree of separation from the dogs to the chickens. A lot of dogs, I would tell you, if you work with them, you can probably train them not to kill your chickens. Uh, Malamutes uh, are giant Siberian huskies, something I have uh, quite a, a decade of experience with living with a husky. And very unique animal. First, you're right on the six to eight foot fence, and you might want to go to eight feet. Um, I have never found a uh, a dog of that breed type that doesn't enjoy escaping and running for miles and miles and miles. It's in their blood. Uh, it, it, it's almost not when they if they will escape, it's when they will escape. Uh, again, on the chickens, we had my husky killed the cat. It was a little kitten, and he did learn to live with the cats in our home, but it was from constant exposure and from kind of coming up with them, and it was a new cat that was brought into the home that he hadn't got accustomed to yet. It was a kitten uh, that he killed, and uh, they are a difficult animal. They're a wonderful animal, uh, that whole breed line, you know, Malamutes, Huskies, uh, the crosses between them. They're, they're wonderful, special creatures. Uh, that I'm glad you're bringing them into your home, but you do have to understand their limitations. It sounds like you do uh, with the chickens and with property. If you want to stay a good neighbor, they have to be fenced in because they will not, absolutely will not, not run away. Because it's, it's, it's not that they're bad dogs. It's in their blood. It's what they were meant for. They were meant for running long distances. They were meant for exploring. And, and there's something in them that is very primal and very hunter-gatherer oriented. It's in their breed beyond just, it's not just romanticism when I say this. And I'll explain what I mean. My husky Lakota, when we lived in Pennsylvania, every time that dog could get out, he would get out. And he would escape and he would run. And sometimes I'd get my binoculars out and stand on my deck and there was like this field I could see miles into from where we lived. And I would see this little white dot a couple miles away running through the fields and thinking, oh, God, what is he going to do? And I hope he makes it back without getting run over or shot. And he'd always make it back, and he'd near collapse. Um, and any time he was outside without a leash, if he, if he got a second, he would bolt. But then there were nights that we would build our, our fires up there. We'd do bonfires and bring the whole, you know, whole neighborhood to come over. We'd sit around, drink some beers, cook some marshmallows and some hot dogs and stuff like that, listen to music, and just sit out under the stars. During those times, I could let that dog off the leash. He would come over, and he would sit down next to us at the fire, and he would have no intention of leaving. It was almost as if 
that was as much a part of him as uh, running was, to be with people in that environment. And, and they're special. So understand their special nature and understand the other side of them. Now, here's the other thing he was thinking about doing. Uh, using the dogs' protection from the chickens from wildlife, I think that might help some, but I would just simply stick to, um, instead of, again, putting the chickens in the center of the yard, surrounded by the dogs, making runs along the fences, that'll let the chickens go. Plant trees in the runs, inside the chicken runs. Let the, the tops of the runs open so the trees can grow up and out through them. Surround the root systems of the trees with tires while they're young, uh, and put chicken wire around them to keep the chickens from scratching them too much and do some plantings. There's a great video of a guy from Australia that does a similar system in a much smaller backyard, but I'll put a link to that video today in today's show notes. That's kind of the setup that I would recommend for you. Make sure that at night the chickens have a place to roost that's predator-proof. Um, even with all the fencing in, even with the dogs, I'm telling you, uh, raccoons uh, and foxes and weasels, um, you know, chickens are just everything that they want in the world. So you need a good, solid, protected chicken house. And understand, no matter what you do, you will probably occasionally lose a bird to predators. If nothing else, occasionally you'll probably lose some to hawks. It's just part of having chickens. But do everything you can to protect them that way. And if they're in a narrow run, you're going to protect them a lot from hawks because they don't like to go down into that type of situation, uh, especially if you start putting some overhead cover in with some trees. So Espelar trees on the outside fruit trees on the inside, chickens taking care of uh, picking up all the dead fruit for you that way. And it's really easy, even with the Espelars, even though they're falling on the outside, anytime you walk by and see a dead fruit, to just pick it up and pitch it over to the chickens. That breaks the fruit fly cycle. So that's how I would do that. Um, the next thing is that using the outside fence is structured Espelar uh producing small trees and bushes. Again, you could do that on the outside and the inside. That's a great way. Now your chickens are kind of jungled in there, man. That's, that's, it, it gives them additional protection and additional cover. And if you do things uh, with your espalaring, you're not going to do evergreens, right? So in the winter, when all those leaves fall off, it opens that up fully exposed to the sun. In the winter, they're given, or in the summer, they're given shade. So I, I think that's a great idea, but I would look at using both sides of that for your espalar. Um, and looking at the solar requirements and making sure whichever side gets the better solar gets the things that need broader solar requirements and taking more of your shade-tolerant species to the other side. And I think you can come up with something really cool with the setup that you have there. Um, they're also saying produce some sort of uh, producing tree inside the dog yard, protect the raiding squirrels. Um, I'll tell you what, the thing that squirrels have raided on me more than anything else are peaches. So if you're going to plant peaches anywhere, uh, put, put them where the dogs can get to. Any fruit or nut tree is fine. The dogs aren't really going to hurt it. You definitely want to put some protection around the tree when it's young, just from digging. If the dogs get – see, the thing with dogs is whenever there's new soil, so you plant a tree and they start digging at it, you think they're infatuated with the tree. What they're actually infatuated with is that new soil, that turned over soil. And uh, so you need to uh, – to mitigate that for them. So when you plant new trees, one of the things you can do is put some chicken wire around them, um, just a couple feet high, uh, just a couple stakes, and, and wait until that earth kind of settles back in and starts to grow. doesn't have that fresh smell, because uh, that's when they're going to be really inclined to dig, and Malamutes and Huskies, they like to dig, too. I mean, that's just one of their things, especially fresh earth. It's a, it's a territorial thing, and it's a curiosity thing. You have, you have two very intelligent animals. And with intelligence, sometimes, especially with dogs, comes stubbornness. 
So you got wonderful creatures there with a, with a special stubbornness that you'll have to accommodate. Those are some of the things that I, I would suggest for you on that one. Let's see if we take one more and wrap up today. Here's a nice little simple one, good one to wrap up on. Um, comes from Craig in Las Vegas. Craig says, I hear uh, a lot about mulch, and it made sense to me living in northern Wisconsin when I was surrounded by woods with dead leaves and material I could use for my garden. Now I'm a student in Las Vegas living in a gated community with minimal vegetation. What is the true definition of mulch? Can I buy it in big box stores, or is it something I need to build up myself through compost piles and what I can find around me? Thanks, Craig in Las Vegas. Well, let's start out with the difference between compost and mulch. Mulch is anything that's organic that will eventually break down, um, that's not damaging to the plant life, that you can put on the ground, that will cover the ground, and create a good environment for growth underneath it. Okay? So mulch will eventually compost itself over its life cycle and have to be replaced. That's why you have to keep adding mulch. That's why it goes away. Compost is organic matter that's already been broken down and is primarily used for its nutritive value uh, for a fertilizer uh, form of an, an organic fertilizer. So that's what we're looking at when we're looking at things like uh, a mulch, anything that will uh, – will take over that role. Now, you can use non-organic mulches, things that don't break down. They have rubber uh, pellets now that you can use as mulch. You can use rocks. Plenty of things will actually hold moisture into soil uh, by, re- by resisting evaporation. But I am a big fan of organic mulches in most situations. We do use uh, a gravel mulch all the way around our pool for some of the, you know, like cactus-style, succulent-style plantings and things that can handle the arid, dry environment and enjoy the heat retention of the rock, okay? Um, but the main, we didn't do that intentionally. When we got to our house here, there was this huge gravel pit in our backyard that they had set up like, I, it looks like it used to have been for kids for like a swing set or something, and it was just a huge amount of gravel we couldn't get rid of. So we spread it around the pool and did that with it. I probably would have used organic mulches everywhere. So we used it because it was readily available. That's why we have it in the first place. So um, mulch to me is any organic matter that's not going to damage your, your plant. Can you use stuff from the big box stores? I use Cypress mulch from Home Depot for my raised bed gardens. I use it all the time. I like it because it doesn't float away. It's inexpensive. It lasts a long time. It breaks down slowly. Uh, since I have very rich soil already, my soil is composed of 50% compost from the get-go. Uh, I'm not really worried about putting a ton of compost down all the time. So, uh, and, I, and I can allow a slow, long-term breakdown. So uh, I use that. In Vegas, man, you know, I, I can't pretend to be an expert on gardening in the desert, but the more mulch you can put down, the better. Some of the things you can do is to start growing things that have very rapid growth rates uh, that can maybe be cautious. If you can find certain types of bushes or trees that you can prune back every year, and then, you know, in the winter and in the, in the spring, and some of these sprout and grow back even bigger every year, that can produce a lot of, you know, with a small shredder uh, that you could buy and keep, could produce a lot of mulch for you. You do have issues in Vegas, right? There's not a lot of mulch available. Odds are you're going to have to buy it from somebody because there's not a lot of lush vegetation out there to work with. So you can do some of growing your own, but you're probably going to have to rely on, like, a garden center or something like that. Home Depot Lowe's, just about all their mulches are pretty good. Their composts are pretty good, at least in my experience. I can't tell you that they're all organic because they're not. Anything that's organic will have the organic label. I can't tell you that I always use organic mulches when I uh, – when I mulch my garden, I buy, it's uh, No Float, I think it's the brand, No Float Cypress Mulch, and I get that for about two-something a bag, and uh, my, my beds are four foot by eight foot, 
and about a bag and a half puts a good two-inch deep cover uh, on those beds. So I don't know how much area you want to mulch, but wherever you go, the drier and poorer and hotter the soil, the more important mulch is, and the less readily available it is. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, one of the things that you can do that would be kind of a mulch composting, you know, combination, because when you put compost down, you're also, you still are mulching. Let's not be uh, dishonest about that. It's just it's a lot more expensive to mulch with compost, because compost is a more expensive and broken down item, where the mulch is going to sit there and break down over time, right? So one of the ways you could get a tremendous amount of compost dirt cheap is to build yourself a composting system, a three-bin system, and start going to a local grocery store. Um, and just say, hey, talk to the produce manager and say, look, I would like all the produce that you throw away for the next week, just for the next week, for composting. Make sure he understands it's for composting. If he thinks you're going to eat it, he won't give it to you. If he thinks you're a homeless guy, dress nice when you go make this request. Dress nicer than you normally do, okay? Because if he thinks you're a homeless person or working for a homeless shelter and lying to him, he'll tell you no because he can go to jail if something happens to you and you eat that food, even if there's nothing wrong with it. Make sure that he understands. What you, if, you, if he gets that, if he believes you want it for composting, he'll probably be happy to give you as much as you want. And honestly, in a week, you'll fill, you know, two, two of your three bins, and you could probably have to put a fourth one in for full rotation. Uh, and then just, you know, form a good relationship with that guy. Say, look, I can only compost so much. I'd like to come back once every two months or so and get more. You'll be able to make all the compost you can possibly handle completely for free. And that applies to anybody anywhere in the country. Most produce managers will do that. If you've asked and been told no, I'll tell you it is a concern that the food will be consumed. That's what it's all about. That's, and that's why they're resistant to doing it, because there's people that go into their dumpsters and pull food out and eat it every day. And it may be that. It may be going to the dumpster and pulling it out. I would prefer to, uh, to not have to go through dumpsters and go through stuff that I don't want and possibly get in trouble for it, to just be honest. If you, it might take two or three grocery stores to find one, but you'll find one. And that would be a tremendous amount of organic matter. You do have to compost that stuff, though. It won't make good mulch. It's going to sit there and rot. But you will find that you'll be able to compost as long as you keep your compost piles moist, uh, very, very quickly in the heat of Vegas. Uh, but moisture is going to be critical that you keep everything good and moist, constantly uh, wet it down, not, not, not soaking wet, but you want to be able to pick up the material inside it and squeeze it. You don't want water to pour out of it, but you want it to feel like a, a well-wrung-out sponge. So that will produce a bunch of compost. So if you combine those two, you should be able to do uh, quite a bit of gardening, uh, even in Vegas. Uh, with the right plants and, and right things. And go, you know, go find uh, gardening groups and people local to you and say, what are you growing? What works well? What may work well for you are things that are more perennial in nature, uh, pomegranates and things like that, things that I can't grow here, you can grow there. Um, those may be very good crops. And even though your student may be moving, you're leaving something behind. And there's a lot of things like that you can get in production in a year or two. Um, and if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you own the property you're living in right now, uh, when you go to sell it, even if it's a short-term timeline there, uh, it's going to have a higher value because it's going to be unique in Vegas to have something like that. But these things can be, be done anywhere. There's a, a permaculture center I can't remember the name, name of, but it's in the middle of the desert uh, in New Mexico. And, and they have like 4,000 varieties of plants on this little half-acre green oasis in the middle of nowhere. And they don't really have to do that much watering. They do some, but it, the system is set up now to harvest every bit of water. So... Uh, the short answer to the question, though, mulch is anything that's organic, that serves 
uh, the purpose of retaining moisture, does no harm to your crops, and slowly over time will break down and become part of the soil bed itself. And with that, I'm going to wrap up today. I know I went a bit long. Uh, I'm finding a little bit of a voice thing again today. I don't know what it is, so uh, if I fumbled a little bit, I'm sorry. I'll try to do a better job for you guys tomorrow. I probably am going to knock out a few of these shows this week just because the backlog's gotten so big on listener questions and feedback. But don't let that stop you from sending me questions. Remember, you can email me a question anytime you want to, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. For best handling, put in the subject line, question for Jack. Now, questions, even if you ask more than one, question for Jack. That'll get it filtered and get it faster into our screening process to see if we can get it on the air. Using the feedback form, you can do that, but you're better served with an email because you control the subject line. You go right in the screening folder, so that's my suggestion there. Uh, With that, I am going to wrap up. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope that this has been a good show for you. I feel like I, I don't know, I don't feel like I really nailed it the way I usually do. Uh, But, again, I'll try to do it better for you tomorrow. Uh, I'm probably going to do a show on debt tomorrow. Uh, maybe, maybe it's not tomorrow, maybe Wednesday. I really think it's time for us to back up and take another look at that subject. Debt is a monster. It's a destroyer, and it doesn't belong in your life. Uh, it doesn't belong in your life at all. Uh, make sure that you're eliminating debt. That's a great way to live that better life. If you do that, a lot of the things that you look at today and go, I just can't do these things. I just can't do these things. If you get rid of the debt, you will be able to do them. And if you're at a developmental point in your life, this is another thing. I've got a lot of things from people on the forum lately and in YouTube, but I can't afford to do this. There's two likelihoods there. One is you're deeply in debt and it's destroying your ability to use your income. Two is your income's low. You're at a point in your life where you don't have much income. It might be that with that low income, you have no debt, and you laugh at these debt things like, I can't even afford to be in debt, right? Well, the reality is nobody can afford to be in debt, but... You will do better. You will improve your life. Everybody's struggling. If you struggle hard, if you work hard, if you try, if you keep looking for something more, you will make more money in your life. You will increase your income. The big trap is as you increase your income, most people bring debt along for the ride. Don't go into the trap. And if you're already there, get out of it. Either way, you'll be able to take care of these things. Yes, some of the things I talk about, putting photovoltaic systems in, cost a lot of money. Even some of the things that don't cost a lot of money, to you they might be a lot of money. An Excalibur dehydrator for over $200. You can't afford that right now. I understand that. The key is you will be able to if you live that life debt-free. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sign off. And I'm going to say, I thank you for listening to the show. I thank you for sharing the show. This has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping to figure out how to live a better life in times get tough or even down. You wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.